Hi, my name is Alan Cross. You probably know me from the ongoing history of new music, and you are listening to Talking Blues. Alan, um, I'm at an age where I sometimes remember things that might have not happened, but I have this weird recollection that back in the early 2000s, when I 2002, 2003, when I had a when I had a TV show called Talking Blues, you sent me an email to congratulate me. And I, I so I have this distinctive memory of this. I have no idea if it really happened, but I think it did. And I've always thought that, and I always thought that was a nice gesture. Is that the type of thing you would do? It, it is. I mean, I, I certainly send uh, all kinds of emails to people. My, my whole thing has been, if you want to last a long time in this business, uh, it's really quite simple. Don't be a dick. You know, be be nice to people. Uh, don't be arrogant. Uh, congratulate people on their successes. Uh, console people on their failures, and just be a, a decent human being, and everything will be will be fine. What, when do you think you learned that lesson? Um, I think it was something. I think it was a hard lesson learned over the years. When you get into the business of, of broadcasting, you develop a sense of of ego. There's no other way to put it. I mean, you don't get into this business without having some kind of ego, thinking that you, you, you've got something to say, you've got something to offer, people will stop and listen to you, people will pay attention. And uh, one of the things about broadcasting this way as an individual is that uh, you have to give a piece of your soul, a piece of your personality every time you're on the radio, simply because that's what the audience expects. If you don't, you sound inauthentic and fake. So every time you go on, on the air, every time you open the mic, you give away a tiny little piece of yourself. And that leads to a situation where you begin to think that you're more important than you actually are. That, uh, you know, you're bigger than the radio station. You're more important than the audience. You're more important than this or whatever. And it's easy to fall into that trap. And uh, I, I, I will admit that I think for a while I was uh, I, I got suckered into that, that hole. But a couple of humbling experiences uh, changed my attitude. And as I watched, as I stood in the state of the business longer and longer and longer, I saw people around me who didn't learn that lesson and uh, were, were shunted out of the business. So... Um, I just basically took my cues from them. Don't act like them. Be nice and be thankful for every day that you get to do this. That's a great lesson. I, so I'm going to, I'm, I'm sure I thanked you back then, but I'm going to thank you again because it did leave an impression on me that, that you would take oh, the time to, to send me a note to congratulate me. And that, that meant a lot. So thank you very much for that. I am interested in finding out about you. Which came first, your love of radio or your love of music? Love of radio. My grandmother gave me a transistor radio for my sixth birthday. We don't know why. My mother didn't ask her to buy me a radio. My grandmother was an old Ukrainian woman who had absolutely no technical skills whatsoever when it came to electronics. Uh, I was six years old. I had no business having a transistor radio, but there it was on that Saturday morning back in, I'll tell you, 1968, that I got this, this radio. And I was growing up in a small town north of Winnipeg. We had three TV channels, two, one of which were in French. And uh, the only radio that I had any knowledge of was what mom and dad played on the kitchen counter or in the car. Uh, getting my own radio helped me discover that there was, in fact, more than one radio station and that there was more than one city where radio stations lived. So I became addicted to this little thing, listening to not only the stations coming out of Winnipeg, the stations I wanted to listen to, but regional stations. And then at night in the wintertime, when the atmospheric conditions were right, I would listen to Chicago and Minneapolis and Cincinnati and Denver. And wow, where's all this stuff coming from? And I would fall asleep with my little radio on my pillow, my little Lloyd's transistor radio, uh, and my mom would have to come and take it off the pillow and, and put it away. So that's that's the way it, it began. So as that young six-year-old, what were you imagining that, what was that love of radio? What, was it just this world that you didn't know? Was it the music that you heard? It was just these mysterious voices uh, coming out of space. 
and you know it was it was magical like where are they coming from what's their you know how do they do this you know where do they get this music where do they get this information it, it, it was it was life changing for me now that you you know look back on it um the music came along later uh not that much later but it was this this fascination with this little black box black and silver box that i had on my pillow every night that really really intrigued me did you ever want to be a musician Oh, absolutely. Um, my parents insisted that I take uh, music lessons. And for some reason that still eludes me, I chose the accordion. <laughs> Please don't hold that against me. But then later in high school, uh, a bunch of us decided that we were going to form a band and I was given drums. So uh, I have been playing drums since 79-ish, I guess. Um, and I've been in a bunch of different bands and, and, and so on. But I, I realize my limitations. Uh, my strength is is not playing or creating music. It's it's talking about it. Okay, so when did you find that out? That's a good question. Uh, again, we got to go back pretty pretty far. Um, listening to the radio eventually, of course, brought me into listening for music. Now, there were three AM radio stations in Winnipeg when I was growing up, each of them, well, three top 40 AM radio stations. And uh, back then, it was all pretty tribal. So you would identify with one of those given radio stations, and that told everybody else around you something about you. So you might have been a CKY person, you might have been a CKRC person, or you might have been a CFRW person. Now, I was a CFRW person, which is a station way down at the far end of the right, at the right end of the dial, sort of the third place am station am top 40 station in the city and i somehow like the underdog aspect of the place but anyway um so i began to absorb music they would publish the weekly charts in the winnipeg free press and i would look and see what songs were going up and going down i'd be following all the different countdowns and i knew all the djs and, and that kind of thing um i started buying records with money from a paper roots and then the next big thing happened when I went to visit my uncle one day who had a side hustle servicing jukeboxes. And he worked for the Manitoba telephone system, but I guess it didn't pay very well. So uh, he would go on a round, round every Saturday and swap out the old 45s for new ones. And the old ones were pretty worn out by this time. So they would be thrown away. But that particular day, uh, he gave me a box of 27 of them. And uh, that became the basis of my record collection. And I, I just continued to buy records from Irene Pearson's furniture store. Every Tuesday I would go in, they would have a new uh, list of records that were for sale, 45s. And I'd buy two or three of them and go get them the following week and then repeat for the week after that. The uh, other thing that has to be considered is the fact that I, I did pretty well in school. I was always in the top three and I wasn't very good at hockey. Now, if you make those two, being good in school and not very good at <laughs> hockey, you were a bit of a pariah. You weren't exactly the coolest person on the planet. So um, the one thing that saved me from being beaten up more than once was the fact that I was the music nerd. I knew something about um, all the music on the radio. I knew about concerts. I knew about albums and that sort of thing. And that was the thing that that gave me a modicum of of coolness a tiny tiny bit hardly any at all but enough uh to give me a little bit of distinction amongst everybody else in the high school where would you have gotten that information we're talking what late 60s early 70s no this would be this would be in the 70s okay. uh and the uh, i would go to the drugstore and look at the music, you know, the, uh, the magazine stand, and I would buy Rolling Stone. I would buy Circus. I would buy, what else was there? Are those two for sure? Parade magazine, Hit Parade magazine, maybe? I, I would buy all these different, you nice. know, Cream, yeah. that would be another one that I would buy, and, and I just devoured them. Um, I was a big reader, and, and if I could read, and I was reading about music, well, that's kind of the best of both worlds. So that's where I, I, I got my non-radio information from otherwise i'd be listening to the radio a lot and just sort of picking up stuff from what the dj said so you you went to university i think you went for history history and political science at that point are you thinking that you might get into radio i know you did radio at university but are you thinking your career path is going to head towards doing radio 
Oh, absolutely. Um, I thought, though, that I was going to be a journalist, a news anchor, a reporter, a foreign correspondent, something along those lines. Uh, I, I was you know, too proud to admit that being a dope smoking radio DJ would be a fun thing to do. I certainly <laughs> wouldn't, you know, my parents wouldn't approve of that. So I, you know, I'll, I'll do something serious. I'll do something meaningful. Um, so I took all the requisite courses in university. They didn't have a broadcasting course, but I did take history, political science, sociology, French, you know, all those sorts of things um, to, you know, beef up the skills that I thought I would need to be this journalist. And I also had a one hour shift on CKUW, which at the time was a closed circuit radio station that broadcast to exactly one hallway and one cafeteria. And my shift was 8.30 to 9.30 on Friday mornings. And you can imagine how many people were in the hallways or that cafeteria between 8.30 and 9.30 Friday mornings. Um, it was a terrible rundown, barely functioning radio station. But at the same time, it gave me the opportunity to talk on a microphone for the first time, cue up a record for the first time, back sell a record for the first time, that kind of thing. So I'm, I'm eternally grateful uh, for, for that opportunity. Okay, so when you got that opportunity, after thinking that this is maybe something you might want to pursue, was it what you thought it would be? Oh, well, no, it wasn't. So I, I, I do this for a while. Um, a small radio station, brand new one, opens up about 15 miles from where I'm growing up. Um, and I bugged the guy who was a CBC engineer. Um, he owned the place. And I bugged him until he hired me for weekends. So I got a job working Saturday and Sunday from three. I was Saturday, it was three until six. And then Sunday, it was noon until six. And it was a full service type thing. So you would read the news, read the sports, read the weather, and then play records and then talk about the records and talk about other things. So that was a real world radio job. But the focus was that I was still going to be this, this news person. Uh, when I got out of university, I managed to get a job at a 1,000-watt AM radio station in Kenora, Ontario, which is the second last town on Highway 17 before you leave the province going west. And uh, the general manager there said, uh, look, you, our, our news guy is going to quit. We, we know he's going to quit. So when he does... Uh, you can, you can be the newsman and go, fantastic. But for the first little while until he actually bails, uh, we're going to need you to be on the radio doing you know regular DJ things. Okay, fine, no problem. So through July and August of, of 1983, that's what I did. I was on the radio playing, um, playing records and doing all the other stuff. And then the guy quits. So uh, the day after Labor Day, 1983, I got to realize my dream of being a news person. And I hated it. I mean, it, it, it hit me like a ton of bricks. This sucks. I hate this. What did you hate about it? Everything. It was <laughs> just not the gig that I thought it was. I mean, it didn't help that I was the, uh, the newsroom. I mean, there was nobody else. So my shift started like 5 in the morning, and then I had to work until about 1 o'clock grab some sleep and then in the evening go out and cover something like a city council or a town council meeting or, or a hockey game or something like that. And, and then be back at the, in, in, in the building at, for 5 a.m. It was terrible. It was just absolutely, utterly terrible. Fortunately, though, before I got that job, I had applied to a FM rock station in Brandon, Manitoba called KX96, far cooler than a station or that a city uh, of, of that size should, should have. And um, they called me and said, yeah, we, we need somebody to do what's called a swing shift. And I left Kenora so fast that my landlord actually sent the sheriff after me for non-payment of rent. <laughs> that's, that's, uh, that is absolutely 100% true. At the time that you were doing the radio gig before, like announcing songs and doing, being a DJ, did you enjoy that part? I found the more I did it, the more I enjoyed it, which kind of surprised me. But it, at the same time, it was, you know, this is not what I got into this for. Uh, just, you know, keep your eye on the prize. Keep your eye on the prize. That's that's how it's going to go. Um, and when I got to be a news person, I realized that, no, I was having way more fun. And I was probably better at being a DJ than I would have ever been 
being a news a news person. So, um, it all worked out. <laughs> well, thank God that it did, because yeah. it would be it would be scary to think that this is what my dream would be, and then to experience and find out that it really wasn't. Yeah, it was ugly. It was it was ugly for those those twenty three days. <laughs> so you left, became a, a radio disc jockey. At this point, now are you enjoying the whole experience in in your new job? Yes, as a matter of fact, because I got in with the right group of people. Like I said, KX96 was far cooler than a city the size of Brandon deserved to have. And the people there were fantastic. I mean, I still keep in touch with some of those people many years ago, or many years later. And I was only there for nine months. But uh, the atmosphere, this was an AM-FM TV combination. The atmosphere was such that it really, really got me excited about the business of radio. They taught me about things. They showed me where things could go. I got to do things that I'd never been able to do. Uh, I had decent equipment to work with for the first time. And it was, uh, it was pretty, it was pretty sweet. Um, after nine months there, I got a job working overnights at uh, a station called Q94 FM in, in Winnipeg, which uh, was, uh, a, it was, a very conservative adult contemporary station, but it was a major market. And I had basically gone from working in a city of uh, 5,000 to a city of 700,000 over the course of three years. So I was pretty happy with my, my progress. And then you wound up at CFNY after that. Yeah, um, I was in Winnipeg for a couple of years. I went from being the all-night person to the music director job. Um, I had a you know a nice apartment for Winnipeg. I was making decent money uh, for the time, which was $23,500 a year, more than I'd ever made. And I, um, I, I was bored. Um, the problem was the station was very, very conservative in its musical tastes. It was, you know, uh, leaned very heavily female. So a lot of Whitney Houston and Huey Lewis in the news and that sort of stuff it wasn't really my music. And I'm 23 years old. So it's, it's like, yeah, you know, I wish yeah, it's fine. And I was, was increasingly running into problems with my boss who was so, so skittish and conservative. And there was one day in September of 1986 where I went into a music meeting. It was my job to listen to all the records beforehand, bring them into the music meeting with the program director. We would listen to them and decide which songs we would add to the playlist. And I came in one day with this record. And I said, this is, this is perfect. It's, it's well-produced. It sounds brilliant. It's got a fantastic melody. It's female-friendly. It's everything that we would want in a song. I think we should play it. And without even listening to it, he looked at the label and said, nope, we're not going to do it because this sing the singer used to be in a rock band and we don't play songs from singers who used to be in rock bands like this. Um, okay. So the, uh, the song was in your eyes by Peter Gabriel. Wow. And I knew right then that I, I had to get out. I just, I, I gotta go. And so I did what I would, what, what all radio people do when they need to get a new job. You come in in the middle of the night with uh, armed with some uh, cassettes and you put together a demo tape that you then send out to radio stations where you'd like to work. So I came in uh, two o'clock that morning and I was going to use Dan's studio, one of the producers. And I knew it was going to be Dan's studio because he didn't mind people using his gear and he always left the studio unlocked. But for whatever reason that night, Dan's studio was locked. Oh, great. Well, I could use George's studio, but George always locks his studio. Still pointing me. Well, okay, I'll go and check. So guess what? George's studio is open. All right, fine. I'll work here. So I started putting together my demo tape, which involves taking something called air checks, cutting them up into bite-sized pieces, and basically putting together like three, three and a half minutes of your greatest hits on the air. And as I was dumbing off the second of two cassettes, one was going to go to Fox in Vancouver, and the other was going to go to a station in Edmonton called K97. I noticed that there was a magazine sitting on the console over to the right side. Now, back then, we didn't have the internet 
so we needed magazines to connect the radio and records industry together. And we had something called RPM magazines. Came out every week. It was a very expensive subscription. I think it was $365 for a year back in 1986. That was, you know, a fortune. And uh, this one copy would come in and it would be shared amongst all the management program directors and music directors. And as the music director of the FM side, I was the one who was in charge of making sure that we kept all these uh, RPM magazines in a place where they could be referenced at any point. And woe to anybody who took the current magazine out of my office without permission. So here I am in the middle of the night in the studio that I'm not supposed to be in because it was supposed to be locked and sitting on the console is the brand new RPM magazine, which was supposed to be in my office, which was locked. Oh, well, I'm going to have to yell at George in the morning. But meanwhile, I picked it up and looked at it and I, they, they had some classified ads. And one of the classified ads was uh, looking for an, um, an evening person at CFNY in Toronto. And I thought, well, you know, Toronto, pretty big. Yeah, play weird music at this. Uh, I don't know. Maybe. I don't know. But then I looked around and I saw that I had exactly one more blank cassette, one more manila envelope. And this is important. Just enough postage, which was 76 cents, to send out one more package. So I dubbed off a third cassette, ran off another cover letter, ran off another resume, dropped everything in the mail. I never heard back from Vancouver, never heard back from Edmonton, and I was hired five days later in in uh, in Toronto. So what do you call that? I call that the dumbest of dumb luck. I mean, so many things had to have happened for me to get hired, and they all happened in rapid succession uh, on a night that everything looked like it was going wrong. And I, I, I don't know. I mean, this is what happens in, in life. Every once in a while, uh, something weird happens. And then you look back on it and go, wow, if that <laughs> had not have happened, I would not be sitting here today. Yeah, because that basically changed your whole life. Everything. Everything. So what was being, being a DJ at CFNY like for this young kid from Manitoba? Uh, scary. Uh Again, you know, it was far more sophisticated than what we were getting, um, the kind of music that we were getting, the kind of program that we were getting in Winnipeg. And uh, the music was substantially different. Now, fortunately, let's go back to KX96. Um, they were playing a lot of the weird new wave and post-new wave stuff uh, back in 83 when I was there. So I had some knowledge of, of what was going on in that world. But I had uh, 15%, 20% knowledge of everything that was being played. So it was a real uh, trial by fire. Man, you were thrown on the air and it's like, okay, here's the library. There are 20,000 records in the library. Um, you were responsible for picking most of the music on your show. Best of luck. And uh, that's the way it was. And boy, if you got it wrong, not only would your fellow announcers let you know, but the audience would let you know. They would call you on the, on the press line and just, just, wow. <laughs> and and did you learn that lesson very quickly? Oh, yeah, about six, uh, two hours. It's all good. <laughs> How is it that, you know, when, when I know that you've been a musical director, but what's it like to work for a radio station where you don't really like the music that you play? Don't know. But in the... I haven't done, it, that, I haven't done that since 1986. Okay. The, the thing I would tell me myself is the fact that um, I... Um, I'm here for the radio, not for the music. I am a radio person first, a music fan second. It's sometimes quite rare for to be able to work at a radio station because you love radio, and that station just happens to play the greatest music of, of, of your life. And I got, again, super, super lucky. Can you, can you explain that a little more about the love of radio and what that meant to you and, and how, what, what is that? What is that love of radio? Sure. It is something that I, like I said, had always been enamored with. And my whole reason for being was to be on the radio doing radio things. And I could do almost any kind of radio things you ask me, except for country music, because 
I would I don't like country music and I would come across as extraordinarily inauthentic. So uh, I never even bothered. But the the act of being on the radio, the act of being live, the act of having these kinds of interactions with an audience, um, you know, being the first to know things because of course you had um, a teletype service a wire service that you could uh, you got the news from before anybody else did it was just an intoxicating sort of thing and again this idea that you were carrying on this one-sided conversation with someone who was either alone or might as well be which was which was really cool and um it was i i called this chicken shit fame too because you got to be on the radio and people learned your voice and they learned your name and when you left the building, nobody knew what you looked like. So you could walk down the middle of a mall and people would leave you alone, which was certainly different than being on television. I, I like that idea. So that's, that's where it all came from. And it just so happens that I ended up in a place that played music that I liked too. Uh, again, that's, that's often quite, quite rare. So the other thing that happened that changed your life was being offered the chance to create or work on the ongoing history of new music. Okay, let me stop you right there. I was not offered the opportunity. I was told <laughs> right. I had to do it. Let's, let me explain. So after um, about 12 years, uh, the radio station had gone through a whole bunch of different management uh, and ownership situations. And uh, it was very complicated. And finally, we got a new owner and a new set of managers, and they were des they were actually thinking about turning the station into a country station. And the reason was that the station had been around for a while, it had a bunch of baggage, it was it, it desperately needed a, a, a reboot. So maybe this this alternative thing that they're doing, it's just it, it's 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 not salvageable. But then again. They did some research, and uh, again, this is 1992. So they're looking around and they're seeing big bands like, you know, The Offspring, not the, uh, Nirvana, and um, Pearl Jam, uh, Soundgarden, Pearl Jam, and Alice in Chains, and Nine Inch Nails, and all these other groups that seem to be doing really, really well. And there's this Lollapalooza thing that got, you know, 38,000 people out to uh, Molson Park and Barry. You know, this is the sort of music that we were doing. So let's stick with it. However, in order to do this right, what we're going to do is we're going to change up the staff and we're going to have to have a weekly documentary program that will put all this music in context for all these new listeners that we thought we were going to get. So they looked around the staff and they found exactly one person with a history degree, which was me. And they said, this is what you're going to do. Now, at the time, I was working Monday to Friday from 2 until 6 p.m beautiful shift. You roll in around 11, do your gig, be home at 7, or have a chance to go out. You could sleep in if you were out late at a gig. It was fantastic. But they said, no, what you're going to do is this. You will do this one-hour program, uh, and you will work on that one-hour program Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday, and we will pay you as a um, as an independent contractor. So that means we're going to actually fire you and then hire you on as an independent contractor. And then you're going to work Saturday and Sunday mornings from 6 a.m. to noon, uh, and we'll pay you as a part-time employee. And I, no, no, well, first of all, no, because I like my shift. Second, you're going to call the program what? That's a, that's a stupid name. And they said, okay, that's fine. Um, here's your package, and we wish you well in your future endeavors. Now, I just gotten married. I just built a house. Um, at that point, all I had been doing is playing records and talking on the radio. Um, not a lot of personal, not a lot of portable skills there. So I, I had to do something. I, I had to take this opportunity and uh, just to keep my head above water with me and the new wife. So, so I did. And uh, I was miserable at it. And I was miserable day and night because, you know, this is 1993. This is before the Internet. Well, the concept of alternative music is still brand new. There's nobody's written any books about it. There's no histories written about it. So I had to start from serious scratch. And uh, the management listened to the first program and said, yeah, fine, go ahead and do it. And uh, that was 964 episodes ago. <laughs> what was the first program? 
Uh, it was just the first program was was just sort of like a preview of, of what the, we I envisioned the program to be. How long did it take for you to know what that program was going to be? Um, I think I knew pretty much right away. Or, uh, I mean, it's evolved over the years with with times and trends and cycles and technology and everything else. But uh, yeah, it. Um, I, I had an idea of what I wanted to do right away because I was, you know, as a history major, I was also a fan of history books and history programs and that sort of thing. So I, I, I can't remember what I modeled it after, but there must have been something that I thought, okay, this is the way I want this to be. And um, it, it, it just worked. I, I would not be sitting here right now talking to you if these people had not forced me into this position. Um, interestingly, most of the people, in fact, all of the people who were responsible for shaking up my life back then, uh, are either out of the business or dead. Um, including one guy who made my life so miserable back then that, uh, I'll put it this way. He, uh, he died during open heart surgery because I think the surgeons couldn't find it. <laughs> so anyway, it's, it all worked out well. So. At what point did you think, okay, now I get this show, this thing is taking off, this is a thing, this is me? Hmm. When did I? I think it probably would have been in 1995 when I wrote my first book um, called The Alternative Music Almanac. And when I opened the box that contained the first 50 copies of the book, I thought, okay, maybe this is what I'm destined to do. And it turned out that I was right. I mean, it's a it's an amazing run, and and you're doing what thirty five shows now a year. Yes, between thirty three and thirty five, depending on the calendar. Plus, I do little one minute daily features. I do two hundred and fifty of those per year. Uh, the programs are run on radio stations uh, across the country, and also one or two in the U.S. And the podcast has turned into a monster. It's uh, been downloaded almost twenty million times. So. Um, yeah, the reason I exist today is is because of this radio program. I know you're still kind of involved in radio. Tell me how radio has changed from the from where you came from to what it is now. Oh boy. Well, I mean, back in the day, it was all analog. I mean, we were dealing with uh, vinyl. We were dealing with magnetic tape. Um, we. <laughs> everything had to be done more or less in, in real time. For example, if you, were, you know, wanted to transfer something from one medium to another, you had to do it in real time. There was no dragging and dropping. Um, that was one thing. The other thing was that there, because there were no computers running any of the show, you were on a three minute deadline or even less throughout your entire shift. So when a 30 second commercial ended, you had to be there to press a button to play the next 30 second commercial. When a record ran out after three minutes, you had to be there to play the next record after three minutes. You had to pull all your records and put them in a stack in the order that you were going to play them and have them ready. And then you had to refile them. Same thing with all your commercials, which came on these cartridges that we called carts. And, um, you know, it, it was a really physical sort of thing because you were always moving, always doing something, always pressing buttons, always, you know, um, filing something, always refiling something, and, and so on and so on and so on. So, um, yeah, it was it was pretty exhausting mentally because you had to be on, and you were live. I mean, if you made a mistake, everybody that was listening knew that you made a mistake. So that's one thing. the The other thing was there was you know you had to uh, you know the request line. The phone was the biggest connection that you had with your audience. There's no email, there's no texting, there was uh, no internet, nothing like that. Um, so it was, like I say, a full body exercise doing a shift back then. Now you have uh, digital playback units that cover everything from all the commercials and promos and jingles and songs that you play to, you know, uh, dashboards which allow you to deal with text messages. You've got email, you've got, uh, you know, all kinds of, of, of digital um audio workstation stuff that you can avail yourself to. It's, it's just, uh, it's, it's, a, I would call it a little bit more relaxed in some senses because you're not doing something every 30 seconds. Okay. So if we take that step further and let's look at the world of streaming 
and podcasts and now radio like the 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 function of radio as the thing to distribute music or to make hits is not what it used to be no so what is the function of radio today in 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 the context of all these other things that are available well it's it's still the most powerful popular and profitable way of distributing any kind of audio information uh, eight and ten people listen to the radio every single week. Uh, the best way to get a song out there is to get it on the radio. The best way to get uh, information about what's happening is is still on the radio. It's free. It's ubiquitous. It's something that you can do while you are doing something else, like driving, for example. Um, it is, however, part of a this piece of the pie, the entertainment pie, the information pie that radio used to occupy, has shrunk because we've got so many other entertainment and news distractions ranging from um you know uh social media to you know uh gaming consoles to uh netflix to you know a billion other things so radio is still doing what it's been doing for the last hundred years um however it the competition is much more fierce for the audience's time so um it's it's radio is, is in the midst of trying to reinvent itself from a social and technical point of view. But it's very hard to do that because it's still working. And you are expected to continue to do what you're doing and generate profit from what you're doing um, while also evolving into the future, which is very uncertain because you're not entirely sure about where things are going. Radio jumped into the internet 20 years ago. And when the dot-com bubble burst, in uh, was in the early 2000s, uh, radio ended up losing a ton of money because we had sunk so much money into in, uh, new infrastructure, new digital infrastructure, with and hiring people and all that sort of stuff, and it, um, it it just went down the drain. So there was a period of time where things were a little bit we were a little bit skittish about investing too much into the internet, but then you know by the mid 2000s, first uh, first decade, uh, we uh, we had it kind of figured out. You know, um, iTunes had come along, the iPod had come along. Uh, podcasting wasn't quite there yet, but we were starting to get into social media like Facebook. That was the first thing that radio really um, got into. Then came Twitter. Um, and, uh, you know, our websites became more robust. We started using off-the-shelf components rather than designing something from scratch. Uh, radio started to have video. Radio started to have pictures. Radio started to be on demand if you went through a, a, a website. So, uh We've done all that, and now one of the things that we have to figure out is uh, how do we become even more on-demand, more customizable for the end user? How do we compete with um, people who are accustomed to getting what they want, when they want it, wherever they are, whatever device they happen to have? And uh, we have to compete with... Uh, uh, automobile manufacturers that are increasingly burying the radio in their infotainment systems, which is not good. And uh, then there are new technologies that we have to think about. Like when, when 5G finally comes along, uh, that has the possibility of, of rewiring the world in a, in a way that we're not really sure how it's going to be rewired. So, uh, you know, these are all things that we have to watch for. You know, I'll give you another example too. Uh, you know, if we do end up having self-driving cars, well, then you can do something other than listen to the radio while you're going from point A to point B. I mean, these are, this is how far ahead we have to think. So, uh, again, radio is still powerful, popular, uh, and profitable, but uh, it has to evolve into, the new, uh, into this new age. Now, that being said, radio has always been excellent at creating audio entertainment, whether it's just if it's AM or FM going forward. Okay, maybe. Or maybe it's something, the distribution system is different. And we'll see what that might be. So with your background in radio, a hit has changed. A definition of a hit song has changed a great deal. What is a hit to you? Well, a hit is something that a lot of people know about and a lot of people like. Um, there are technical versions of a hit. For example, if it reaches the top 40 of a singles chart, and there are a number of singles charts that track these things. It is then considered to be a technical hit. But um, 
for everybody else, it's just a, a song that everybody knows and demands to hear more of for a specified period of time before we get tired and move on. Now, hits these days are also uh, are, are, are on the radio, but they're also on streaming services. And so what makes a hit on a streaming service? Well, um, that depends on who you ask. But usually, you know, Spotify will have their top 200, and, and that's what you'll, you'll look at. Those are the songs that people are listening to the most and often on repeat, which tells you that they're a hit. Okay, so if you're a musician and I came, if I was a musician and I came to you and I said, you know, I, I have, this is my music, I want to get it out to the people, what would you recommend for them to do? Not to say to make a hit, but to get it out there for people to hear. Well, the barrier to entry is so low right now. I mean, for 35 bucks, you can enlist a company like TuneCore, and TuneCore will get your song on all the streaming music platforms. Uh, the trick is getting is, is getting attention beyond the noise. That's hard. And if I knew what the answer was there, I wouldn't be sitting here because I'd be counting my billions and billions of dollars. It is, it's, it's voodoo, it's science, it's art, it's, in some cases, outgunned bribery. Um, it's, it's really, really hard to tell what makes a hit these days. Um, I can tell you that songs are getting shorter because people's attention spans are shorter. Um, I can tell you that hits aren't nearly as um, big as they used to be back in the day before the internet because everybody has a chance to uh, customize their listening experience. And songs are, have, have fallen into a formula. People are very afraid of trying something too different because they've discovered through various analytics that a song today, uh, a successful song today has these characteristics. Therefore, all songs to be written and produced and recorded uh, should have these characteristics. So if you look like a producer like Sweden's Max Martin, he's got a formula and it's been insanely successful. So everybody is trying to be like Max Martin. And that's not good because it leads to this homogeneous sound in terms of contemporary music and, and very little gets very little new stuff gets uh, an opportunity to sneak through. And then we also have to look at the algorithms that the streaming music services use. Uh, they work on a very simple basis. Uh, if you like this, then you will like that. And what you end up with is songs that are similar to stuff that you already like without really having to go outside your comfort zone. And that's not good. Sometimes you need repeated unintentional uh, exposure to a, a new type of music before the uh, penny drops and you go, oh, I get it. And that that's not happening as much anymore because radio stations are playing it safe. Uh, record labels are playing it safe. Songwriters and producers are playing it safe. Artists are playing it safe. Stream music services are playing it safe. So uh, you want to know why there hasn't been a new sound, a new uh, breakthrough in in, in pop and rock in the last 15 years? There's your answer. Could a station like CFNY of the 90s still exist today? Uh, that's interesting. One of the things that uh, we got we got really lucky with the music cycle. So uh, in the early 90s, you know, pop was on the descent and rock was on the ascent. And the type of rock that was on the ascent was alternative, the Lollapalooza generation. Mm -hmm. Uh, a lot of things lined up just right with the radio station. And, you know, we were able to, we were in the right place at the right time. Just super, super, super lucky. Uh, today, it's, you know, you, things are, are less tribal than they used to be. If you were uh, an alternative rock fan, there was only one place that you could go. And that was, that was us, you know, uh, today, um, you could be in, you know, if you're if you're 22 years old these days, you're into all kinds of different music, not just alternative, and you can get any kind of music you want on your phone. So uh, circumstances, technology, society, demographics have changed. So that era will never be uh, replicated for those reasons. Does the passion that you have for radio is it still the same? Yeah, I mean, I want to see it survive. I've spent 41 years trying to make it work. And uh, I've always been looking ahead. There's a lot of people in my business that go, oh, I mean, things were so much better back in the day. Yeah, yeah, you know what? Maybe they were, but guess what? Those, those days are gone. What we need to do now is figure out what's next. And we have all this knowledge of what doesn't work. So how can we put that to work going forward? The question is will radio companies 
and it has to be all radio companies, uh, will they have the courage to um, be creative? And that's that's going to that's be an industry-wide thing. There are pockets where, where things are really cool and radio stations are doing really well. Um, but then there are other pockets where it's like, yeah, let's play it safe because, well, we're risk averse to everything. We don't want to spend any money and you know, revenues are going down. So we can't, we want to hang on to what we've got for as long as we can. So that's, that's, that's one of the things that the industry is up against. Do, do you worry about the future of music in the way that, you know, um, CD sales are not generating the income for musicians? Live gigs have become more difficult for musicians after the pandemic because there are less places to play. Making a living as a musician is probably becoming way more difficult than it ever used to be. Um, I don't think musicians will ever disappear because people are artists and they have to make music. But can can there be enough that they can, in years to come, is there enough of a support system that one can be a financially supported musician? Well, I just read something today that uh, Live Nation expects 2022 to be the biggest year in live music history ever. They've sold 100 million tickets so far this year. That's only September. So there is uh, a tremendous appetite for, for live music. I think that people coming out of the pandemic are, are thirsty for it, and that will sustain it going forward until something else bad happens. Um, people are still coming to terms with the fact that um, the CD physical media has been supplanted by on-demand streaming. Sorry, it's here. You can cry about it all you want. And if you know how to do streaming properly, you could make a living at it. Let's not go there because that's a, that's a three-hour conversation. And um, people are, are, are going to have to adjust to the fact that we have pretty much gutted the middle class when it comes to uh, music. You have the superstars, and there's a very thin layer of those on top. And then below that, you have struggling musicians. Mm -hmm. And uh, they've been struggling terribly over the last couple of years for obvious pandemic reasons. So it'll be interesting to see that if going forward, we can rebuild that middle class, which we desperately, desperately need, because that's the lifeblood of, of uh, the music industry. The other thing we have to think about is, is you know, how are the record labels going to react? Are they going to spend time investing in new talent or are they going to continue down this road of one hit wonders? You know, they'll find a, uh, an artist with a song that uh, is really, really good. They'll beat the hell out of it. And then uh, if the artist doesn't have a second song, well, that's fine. We can move on. There's no, you know, big advances. There's no um, commitment to, you know, spending time in a recording studio because a lot of these people come with, bedroom recordings that they've done on their own and um you, you know we were a band like rem you know had to work through five albums before they had a breakthrough that doesn't happen anymore unless the culture of the music industry changes how has the way you listen to music changed well um i it's you know i spend most of the time listening to music through my computer I spend time um, streaming from my phone. I have satellite radio in my car, and I still listen to regular radio. And I have on the other side of the wall here uh, a very good two-channel stereo that I use to play vinyl and, and CDs. So it depends on where I am and what my mood is. It's it's not like back in my bedroom when I would go and close the door, turn the lights off, and put on a record. Um, or even later when I would have my own apartment and put on a CD and let it run. Don't do that much anymore. My problem too is that I am listening to music most often professionally. So mm -hmm. I'm not listening for necessarily the enjoyment, but I'm listening analytically, which changes your relationship to the song. Um, occasionally what I'll do is I'll find something that I really, really like. And then I will go back and if I have any bandwidth after listening to music all day, listen to that for fun. But uh, otherwise, it's, uh, it's, it's a complicated thing. Well, because this is what you do for a living, and I presume yeah. that the amount of time that you spend writing and researching each episode of your podcast, or of, of your show, that eats deeply into your musical enjoyment time. It, it does. It, it does. And then, uh, you know, the, i got to tell you that there are, are so many days after the... Uh, after, I've spent all day listening to music that I just sit in silence because <laughs> I, my brain needs to reboot. 
it, it really does because otherwise I, I lose perspective I, I lose my ability to listen critically I lose I just just my brain's tired my auditory cortex says I need a break are there any bands out there that we should know about that we might not know about uh, you know that's that's depends on what you're into I mean I I really like a lot of British stuff so you know there's there's a band uh, from Ireland actually called uh, Fontaine's DC that I really like. There's another band called Wet Leg that I really like. There's another band called Dry Cleaning that is really cool. Um, you know, it's they, they come and go so quickly. I mean, for example, let me just check. I'm going to tell you how many songs I have been pitched so far <laughs> in the last week. Pitched means what? What would they uh, hope to get out of you? An email from a publicist or a record label asking me to uh, consider their song. Uh, so I start Friday, I start Friday afternoon. Um, I, well, I delete everything from the previous week, the fr Friday afternoon. So far today, and it's Thursday, um, I have received 336 new songs. Wow. From 336 different artists. And by the time I go through this stuff tomorrow, I go through it on Fridays, uh, I will have somewhere between 450 and 550 songs. That's crazy. It is crazy. <laughs> Nobody can do it. I mean, there is too much music out there. I'll tell you right now that uh, 60,000 songs are uploaded to Spotify every day. And 20% um, of the songs on Spotify have never been, never even been streamed once. Wow. Yeah. Does, does your love of music... I mean, what I find tr troubling is I just don't have enough time to hear new stuff. No, and I, no you don't. I, I don't have enough time to listen to the old stuff. Yes. So this is your business. You spend a lot of time working on new shows and researching stuff. When do you get a chance to really appreciate music for the music fan that you are? That's hard. Usually it's uh, after my wife goes to bed, I come down here and put on something on my, my big stereo and, and listen if my bandwidth allows it. Uh, in the car, I listen a lot in the car. Uh, listen when I'm out walking the dogs, listen when I'm out for a run or something like that. That's when. And it's usually old favorites or, or things that I really, really like that motivate me, calm me, um, cheer me up, bring me down, whatever. In my research, um, I came across top five bands that you liked. And I was happy to hear the Beatles and the Who amongst yes. the amongst the yeah. five, especially the Who because they mean a lot to me. So, and then because of your association with CFNY and new music, I, I was kind of surprised by that list. Although I think Oasis was in there and Stone Oasis, Roses. Stone Roses, Nine Inch Nails. Yeah, so those three I guess fall more under or used to fall under the yeah. new music category. But it was comforting to me to hear the Who, um, Alan. It's. It's a real pleasure talking to you. I thank you so much for giving me this time. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you for taking the interest. Well, I've been listening to your your podcast for a long time and I've uh, been enjoying it. And um, I'm quite thrilled to be talking to you. Again, thank you. And uh, good luck with this podcast. Thank you very much.